may, may be seated. I invite you now to join me in taking your copy of God's Word and turning with me to our passage for this morning, which of course is back in the book of Nehemiah, and we come this morning to chapter 3. So turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3, and as you turn there, you will see it's a long passage. It's a long passage filled with foreign names and minute details about rebuilding the wall surrounding Jerusalem. So here's what we're going to do for our reading of our passage this morning. We're going to remind ourselves that we believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. Every word of it is true. Every word of it is good for us. We need it. We need to be fed on the Word of God. However, we also understand such a long passage and these foreign names and that we would probably butcher a lot of our time together if we tried to go through all of this chapter. So what I'm going to do is pull out some representative verses from this to help us get a good overview of this chapter. But I want to encourage you, when you go home today, don't put your Bible on the bookshelf to pick up again for next week. Take your Bible home with you. At some point today, read through Nehemiah chapter 3. Read through all the passage you need to. We need to. Read it silently so nobody else hears you butcher the names, which we're going to do in our heads anyway. But just because we're just pulling out a few representative verses doesn't mean we think any less of this chapter. We're just being realistic with it. But do want to encourage you later on to read through all of Nehemiah chapter 3. So with that being said, let me pray for our time together and we will come before Nehemiah chapter 3. So let us pray. Lord our God, we come to this passage, which on uh, the outset looks boring. A bunch of names and a bunch of details. But this is your word. And your providence, you brought us to this word. So help us to hear your truth in this. As we have said before, we know Jesus Christ is in this passage. Help us to see him in this, we do pray. Lord, bless us in this time. Bless me as your messenger. Bless your people here as as those who will receive your message. Open our minds, open our hearts, so that in all this you will be glorified. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 3. Let's stand together now for the reading of God's word. We'll start with verses 1 and 2. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. And they consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundreds and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to him, Zakur, the son of Emery, built. Then we go down to verse 5. And next to him, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. And then we'll go down to verse 31. After him, Malaika, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. 
And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. I have yet to find somebody who has said to me, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible is Nehemiah chapter 3. I've yet to find somebody who says, my life verse is Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 6. I haven't found somebody who said, my faith was changed by Nehemiah chapter 3. If we read parts of it, if we look over it, we can in part begin to understand that. It reads like the diary of an engineer, as long as detailed. Who did what work on what section of the wall and for how far? And so it's easy for some of us to come to this passage and be tempted to skim it over. It's not the most exciting read. However, this isn't just a boring list of details. This isn't just the diary of an engineer. This is the word of God. And so we have to read this through the lens of 2 Timothy 3.16 that says all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So when Paul wrote this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he didn't mean all scripture except Nehemiah chapter 3, but all scripture including Nehemiah chapter 3, is breathed out by God. And all of this, even Nehemiah chapter 3, is profitable. It is good for the mind and heart and faith of a Christian. This is a passage we need for our faith. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look for that prophet. Where is the divine and eternal prophet of so-and-so doing such-and-such a work on such-and-such a wall that led to another person who's doing such a work on such-and-such part of the wall, and so on and so forth? Where is Jesus and the prophet of him in this passage? Well, as we come to this, we find ourselves on a building site. We're used to seeing building sites, hard hats, orange vests, Big work trucks are beeping and honking and grinding. That's not what this looked like. It was more rudimentary tools and uh, the sound and noise of a lot of animals and creaking, uh, the creaking of wagons and carts. But we find that Nehemiah has prayed. He has gone before the king. He has made a journey to Jerusalem. He has inspected the wall and he has inspired the people. Now his prayers are continuing to be answered as the people have gathered together to go about the work of essentially rebuilding the wall. As you read through this chapter, you see the walls in such disrepair. There was some repair being done, but a good bit of it had to be rebuilt. And Nehemiah recounting God answering his prayers tells us about the first worker. Or the first worker, sorry, the first worker we're told about is a priest. Look again at verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gates. What is significant about Eliashib? Why does he get top narrative, or top billing in this narrative? Well, Nehemiah tells us, because Eliashib is the high priest. Not just a priest, he's not a, a manual laborer, he is the high priest. And so we go back and we think through the 
Old Testament priest system and the hierarchy of it, Eliashib was the top man. He was the leader of the rest of the priests because he was the high priest. He was the only one allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. So think about it in kind of modern ways. He is the top religious official in Jerusalem. He is the high priest of God's people. And what does Nehemiah tell us about him? That the high priest, the top religious official, rolled up the sleeves of his robes, grabbed some tools, and went to work, along with all the other priests, so they could rebuild the destroyed sheep gate. Now this wasn't a publicity stunt, right? We see other politicians go out there, and they take off their jackets, and they take off their ties, and they roll up their sleeves, and they work for five minutes, so everybody get pictures of them, and they go back, and they go on something else. No, this isn't what's happening. The topmost religious official is doing the same manual labor that everyone else is. So the first thing Nehemiah tells us in this answer prayer of rebuilding the wall is about the high priest showing godly leadership to everyone. Showing godly leadership by being a servant leader. Now Nehemiah has already shown us that before, that he is a servant leader. But he's saying that now about the top religious official, the high priest, Eliashib, is out there working. Now, it would have been easy for him, and maybe even expected, for Eliashib to stand on the sidelines, right? He could have pulled the card and said, I'm going to stand over here and offer up prayers for y'all. But then I've got other duties I need to go do. And so we, it would have been easy, maybe even expected. But that's exactly what he doesn't do. He gets to work with everyone else. Rolls up his sleeves, grabs a shovel, grabs whatever else, and he gets to work rebuilding the sheep gate. Because he understands that leaders best lead by serving. That the best leadership is servant leadership. That the best leadership is when the leaders are willing to get on the level of their people and to do the same work that they are expecting of their people. Nehemiah did that. Elisha is doing that. And they are doing that because that's the example we find in God himself. We think of Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, the second person in triumph Godhead. The one for whom and through whom and to whom all things are created. The one at which his name every knee shall bow. The one who we confess stands at the right hand of God. This God, the incarnate God, the second person of triumph Godhead, we are told, humbled himself. In his, in his incarnation, humbled himself by taking on the form of a humble servant. And in starting in a little bit over a month, we're going to start recounting part of that story that the incarnate God humbled himself to be born in a manger. Not in a palace, not in a gilded crib, but in a manger to be raised as the son of a carpenter. And we believe he worked some time in the family business. And when he begins his ministry, he calls to himself, not the rich and the noble, he calls himself fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. And he has no place to call home. He has no pillow to lay his head on. And he goes out and he lays his hands on the lepers. He stands at the mouth of the tomb of Lazarus who's been dead for four days and calls him back to life. He, puts his, he, he heals the blind and the sick and the deaf. 
he gets down on his hands and knees to wash the feet of his disciples. He stands before Pilate so he can eventually take upon the brunt of the anger of their Jewish religious authorities. And he is crucified, he is degraded, and he dies. And he is resurrected again on the third day. And that is the servant leadership of Jesus Christ. That your God came down and humbled himself to serve you in such a way. To serve all his people in such a way. That's the shadow which we see in Nehemiah and Eliashib. And this is the model of leadership for everyone. To be a godly servant leader. It's the leadership you are to see in your church. It's the leadership you you are to expect from your leaders. It's the leadership you are to expect from your pastor, from your session, from your diaconate. Because there's only one hierarchy in the church. And that is Jesus Christ is over all the church. Jesus Christ is the only head of the church. And that doctrine is built into the DNA of us as ARPs because as ARPs, we come from the covenanters who put their life on the line to fight against the king who's trying to make himself the head of church. And they put their lives on the line, signed with their own blood on the covenant to say, no, there's only one head of the church and it's Jesus Christ. So there's only one hierarchy in all the church and it's Jesus Christ over all. So which means none of us are better than each other. None of us are above each other. Just because someone is elected a leader, or sorry, just because someone is elected as an elder doesn't make them superior. It's not like being an elder is the major leagues and the rest of us are just mired in the minor leagues. No. There is only one head of the church and it's Jesus Christ. Just because someone's elected an elder doesn't make them superior. Same with being a deacon. The same with being a pastor. Because there's only one head of the church and it's Jesus Christ. None of us are better than each other. We all have to have that willingness to be like Eliashib. To get down and to do the work that needs to be done. That's part of the beauty of our Presbyterian government because by its very nature, it excludes such hierarchy of men. Your leaders, our leaders, are elected from amongst us. And they are elected to represent you, not lord over you. And we believe that God calls and equips certain folks to be leaders, but they're called to serve. They're called to serve Christ, and in serving Christ, they are serving us. They are serving you. So being a deacon, a pastor, an elder doesn't make anyone better than those who aren't. And the minute you see any of us start acting like that, take us down a notch or two. All you have to do is come up and say, you think you're high stuff? Well, you ain't Jesus. And you're right. We ain't. There's only one head of the church. And it's Jesus. And that Jesus is our servant leader. And everyone he calls to leadership in the church is called to be a servant leader. That is how the church is meant to work. Not the board who tells everyone else what to do. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the servant leader. And everyone who leads from the pastor to the session to the diaconate to the women's ministry, whatever form of leadership it is, is called 
to be a servant leader. That is how the church is to work. So that's the first divine and eternal prophet we find in our passage. Next prophet we find is in a list of names. Why are they listed? Would it be easier just to give a summary and say, a large group of people got together and they did the work and they did it well and we're thankful for them. But no, they're listed out. Why are they listed out? Well, it's very simple. Because God cares about them and he delighted in their work for him and his glory. Why all these names are here that we trip over? Because God cared about them and he delighted in them so he recorded their names. So they're not just an anonymous group of people. They're named either individually or by family. Nehemiah is saying, either say, hey, that's, that's Billy Bob over there working on the wall. Or he says, oh, that's Billy Bob, all his kin. That's all his kinfolk from his mama's side over there working on the wall. God cares about them. He delights in their work for him and his glory. By faith, they have heeded the call of his servant Nehemiah to repair the wall of his holy city. We just think about the magnitude of what they were, what they were doing. They're not, they weren't out there cutting down shrubs, very thankful. Shrubs being cut down in my yard yesterday. They're, they're not called to do things like, they're called to rebuild a wall. That's an engineering feat. That's an engineering feat with the enemies of God looking after them, knowing they could be attacked at any time. But yet they heeded the call of God's servant, Nehemiah, to repair the wall of his holy city. So God names them. Now this goes back to part of our doctrine of scripture. We believe that Nehemiah was written by Nehemiah, but we also believe Nehemiah was written through the inspiration by the Spirit of God. So with that in mind, we go back to 2 Timothy 3.16, and therefore we believe that these names were breathed out by God. All these names we trip over, these were breathed out by God. God names those who are working. And it's quite a group of people who are working. Over 41 separate groups are identified. Priests, Levites, temple servants, goldsmiths, merchants, officials, private individuals, those who live in nearby cities, not a single engineer, not a single master to craft. But all of God's people heeded the call to do the work that needed to be done. And we're given something interesting here in verse 12. The son Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired the wall along with his daughters. That's included for a reason. We, 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 we have this picture of a man who's a ruler. Gold rings, nice suit, nice coiffed hair who's out there working along with his daughters. Now, to our, to our ears in our day and age, this may sound just normal, right? We live in a day and age where, where women are, are often seen doing the work that at one time would have been considered the domain of men only. But that's not the context of Nehemiah 3. This would have been utterly unusual. Women were not on a construction site. They were at home, baking bread, taking care of the children, looking after the house, maybe keeping over some of the small plot of vegetables they had in the front. They were not manual workers. But to do this work, all hands on deck were needed, even the daughters. This reminds us of World War II. All the young men sent off to do war, to fight against the Germans and then uh, against the Japanese. 
And so women had to come into the factories. And they were building tanks and airplanes and guns and bombs. That in some significant portion, we won World War II because of our women doing the manual labor. Remember the post, the post of Rosie the Riveter, right? She had bigger muscles than me. But it's Rosie the Riveter, right? Showing the work of the women. And that's what's happening here. All hands on deck. And God knows every one of them and names them because they responded in faith to the call of God's servants. And this is a wonderful picture of the gospel. A reminder that not only are we known, we are personally known by the God of all because of Jesus Christ. It it may be a temptation for us to think of the gospel in mass terms, right? That Jesus died for all these people, and I just happen to be included in all these people, right? Jesus died for all of us in here, and I just happen to be included in this. So we have this sort of mass blanket view of the gospel. But the testimony of Scripture is that Jesus died for you personally, you. That when he came to accomplish salvation, he did it with you in mind. So we think of John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world. And we can take that and go, well, that's, yeah, that's this big blanket that's covering it all. And I just happen to be underneath that blanket. But there's a personal nature to this word. Yes, God so loved the world. The world he created for you to live in. The world he created, or the world that he knit you together in the womb for. The world he caused you to be born in. We think of the world, we think of an astronaut in space as this big globe. When God thinks of the world, he thinks of you. Because he created this world for you. He knit you together in your mother's womb for this world. He caused you to be born to live in this world. God so loved the world also means that God so loved you. That's how personal the gospel is. And we see this, in a sense, comes full circle at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's a negative part to that, right? It's hell, but let's look at the positive part. That there's a book in heaven. And I I picture, you know, one of those old, leather-bound, kind of dusty-looking books, but uh, maybe it's an iPad, but I'm sure there's a book in heaven. And it says, all of God's people's names are written in it. Who do you think wrote those names in it? Was that Peter's job? James's job? Some dude from the first century? Billy Bob from the first century? No. God himself wrote every name in that book of life. There are some who speculate that those names are actually written in the blood of Jesus by Jesus himself. Your name, written by Jesus in his own blood in the book of life. That's how personal the gospel is. It's not just an anonymous mass group of people you happen to be a part of. Your name in Jesus' blood written in the book of life in heaven. Like the people on the wall, God knows you. 
and he named you. Isaiah 49, 16 says, Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. That's how personal it is. When God looks down at his hand, he sees James William McManus. He sees you, and he has engraved on his own hand. That's how personal the gospel is. So when we receive and rest upon Jesus alone for salvation as he has been offered in the gospels, then we come to know the personal nature of the gospel. God knows you. God knows your name. He has written your name in his book of life. It's like how William Nelson sang, you were always on my mind. And we have always been on God's mind. That's the great personal truth of the gospel. And that's part of the divine and eternal prophet we find in this passage. When you read this chapter later, I want you to take notice of who isn't named. And I'll tell you, it's Nehemiah. He doesn't name himself. So does that mean he's off somewhere, laying down on the couch, enjoying the breeze, and his ladies, pretty ladies, feeding him grapes? No, we we know he's right there working with them. But his humility is such that he doesn't name himself. He's living out what he has said. He said to the people of Jerusalem, it was the hand of God, the hand of his God that was upon him for good. And it will be his God alone who will prosper this project. So Nehemiah, even as he records this, says this isn't about me. This is about God. So that humble humility of servant leadership, he refuses to name himself But he does name some other people, doesn't he? In verses 5 and 27, we're told the Tekoites, the Tekoites, sorry, Tekoites are mentioned twice. And they're building two different sections of the wall. And they were more than willing to work and do more than their fair share. When we read in verse 5, we're told their nobles were not. Matter of fact, this is what Nehemiah says. Their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. That says a lot, doesn't it? They're not refusing to work. They're, it's not, they're not seeing the key, the, key to, to, the good in it. No, they're refusing to stoop down. They're refusing to lower themselves to do this work of the Lord. That classic nose in the air, air of arrogance all around them, and they get called out for it. For the rest of eternity, written in Nehemiah are these words about them. Their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. That's not how we want to be remembered. Now we're not sure why the nobles had this attitude. Maybe they didn't like new leadership. Who is this guy Nehemiah coming in? Does he know we have traditions around here? We have a certain way of doing things. And this new guy just can come in and think he can get things done like that? We're not going to help him. Maybe he didn't see a need in this work. It's just a waste of time. We could be, we could better spend our time and resources somewhere else, somewhere, something else to our liking. It's not our idea, so therefore it can't be very good. Maybe they just thought themselves above this sort of thing. They're not going to, you know, their hands are too precious to get calloused and cut and roughed and bloodied. 
For whatever reason, the nobles' noses are high up in the air, their arms are crossed, and they refuse to stoop down to do the work. So they find themselves in contrast to other rulers who are mentioned in this chapter. They have failed to have the spirit of humility that we've seen in Nehemiah, we've seen in Eliashib, and we see in Jesus Christ. We've been talking about Wednesday evenings in the upper room that Jesus would demonstrate this humility that on the eve of his betrayal and arrest, he would take a towel and proceed to wash the feet of his disciples. That's a disgusting job. This is the job of a servant. And Jesus Christ, the second person in Trinity, preparing for the cross, gets down on his hands and feet to wash the feet of his disciples. He did so to exemplify the lowliness of what he had come to do in his, in, in his incarnation and to provide an example for us. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. A good summary of it's better to serve than to be served. All of God's people understood that, except these noble rulers. And they will forever be remembered for their sinful stubbornness to participate in the work of the Lord. And that calls to our minds the work of the church. What is your attitude to your church and to its work? When you think of your church and the work of the church, what is your attitude towards it? And what I'm getting ready to say, I don't mean it to be harsh, but I think it's something we need to understand. Realistically, we are a church of 90-ish members. We're averaging about 60-ish in worship. And we're involved in a good bit of ministries. There's a good bit of work to be done in and through this church. So what is your attitude to your church and to its work? Do you seek to have the attitude of a servant? That whatever the church needs, you will do. When there's work to be done, you want to help with the work. You want to do what you're able to do. Do you, take, do you approach it as a servant that God has called you to this church to do this very work? Or do you find you're tempted to make excuses to not do the work? Listen, some excuses are legitimate. Some of you don't need to get up on the ladder to get on the roof of the church. Some of you don't don't, don't have the stamina to do a middle school retreat. And we understand that. But I think there's times we come up with excuses that aren't legitimate. They're, they're, They're made to keep us from serving the church. Just an example of what I've heard over my 20 years in ministry. I've done my time. It's time for someone else to step up and serve. Sorry, I I would like to help, but we've committed ourselves to to this sport, to this activity, so we're actually not going to be at church all that much. I like to keep my evenings free. I don't really like the person involved. I don't really like the pastor involved. 
So as long as they're involved, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to help. Well, we could probably add more to it. We're all tempted to give those excuses. And when I'm tempted, and when I hear those excuses, there's times I imagine what it would be like for Jesus to answer us with those excuses. Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Sorry. I've done that before. I'm tired of doing it. Not going to do it this time. Jesus, I, I really need your help right now. I'm a little busy over here. I've really obligated myself to something else. I'll try to come back and get back to you later. Jesus, will you help me with this? No, I don't really like you. You haven't had a good attitude lately, and you've said some things that hurt my feelings, so I'm not, I'm not going to help you. Jesus, be with us in worship. <laughs> Sorry, I'm at the beach. I'm somewhere else. I, I can't be there. If Jesus used our excuses, the gospel would fritter away and the church would collapse into uselessness. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord, who is the servant leader. And he calls for his leaders to be servant leaders. He calls for his people to be servants. One of the ways we show our love for Christ is how we love his church. I believe it was Augustine who said, you cannot have God for your father if you do not have church. I'm sorry, it's Calvin, John Calvin. You cannot have God for your father if you do not have the church as your mother. Could you imagine ever saying to your mother in her time of need, sorry, I'm busy. We show our love for Christ and how we love his church. We serve Christ by how we serve his church. Not for our glory, but for his. So we end with these words from Dr. Derek Thomas. Church unity is a very precious thing and should be prized when it is found. It is a beautiful thing to behold and we could wish that this spirit of cooperative effort were more prevalent in all of our churches. The work in which we are engaged, no less than for the folks of Nehemiah's time, is God's work. We are building the kingdom of God together by the help of God's spirit and to the glory of the Lord. There is no place for the spirit of one-upmanship that so often mars our efforts. Too often, the anthem that predominates among us is, Oh, say, can you see what's in it for me? What lies behind this collective responsibility is a realization that these people were a family. They were God's family. Bethel ARP, this is our family. This is God's family. We will best work and function as a family through servant leadership, through servants to the church, always for the glory of God. Let's pray.